I flung myself down under a fig tree, how I know not, and gave free course to my tears. The streams of my eyes gushed out an acceptable sacrifice to thee. And not indeed in these words, but to this effect I cried to thee, And thou, O Lord, how long, how long, O Lord, wilt thou be angry forever, or remember not against us our former iniquities? For I felt that I was still enthralled by them. I sent up these sorrowful cries, How long, how long, to-morrow and to-morrow? Why not now? Why not this very hour make an end to my uncleanness? I was saying these things and weeping in the most bitter contrition of my heart, when suddenly I heard the voice of a boy, or a girl, I know not which, coming from the neighboring house, chanting over and over again, Pick it up, read it, pick it up, read it. Immediately I ceased weeping, and began most earnestly to think whether it was usual for children in some kind of game to sing such a song, but I could not remember ever, ever having heard the like. So damning the torrent of my tears, I got to my feet, for I could not but think that this was a divine command to open the Bible and read the first passage I should light upon. For I had heard how Anthony, accidentally coming into church while the gospel was being read, received the admonition as if what was read had been addressed to him. Go and sell what you have, and give it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. By such an oracle he was forthwith converted to thee. Welcome, everyone. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with Zell and Heidi to talk about repentance, what it is, what it means for the Christian, and how it plays a role in our lives. Zell and how's it going? Things are going pretty well over here. Rained all day yesterday, which was kind of unusual. I think they even said they got like three inches up in Williston, just a little bit to the north of us. But everything otherwise is, is going well. I've been working on the house a little bit, trying to get some projects done, and Hopefully just kind of not piling on too much all at once, you know? <laughs> what about you, Willie? Well, the it finally stopped raining here, you know, a couple weeks ago. Been a very late season here in farm country, getting everything done. But now it's hot. We're still getting, though, the occasional heavy rain shower, which is slowing everything down. But I think, you know, the for the most part, other than if some wet spots here, the crops are at least in the ground now. Always a good thing. Right. And now the hot summer weather is hit. How's your garden doing, Zellin? For a while there, it was kind of holding back because everything was so cool. But now that it's kind of heating it up a little bit, my tomatoes are actually starting to, to pop up, which is kind of nice. So pretty good feeling there. Good. Yeah, we, we've got some green tomatoes already coming. So we've already fried quite a few. <laughs> Corn's up. Corn's doing fine. But the Japanese beetles have reappeared this year. So, you know, that, that keeps you busy. I have potato bugs on my potatoes, but not too many yet. So, right, you just hand pick them, or you or you spraying them like an American. Yeah, <laughs> I'll probably just pick them for now because there isn't too many yet. But yeah. I might spray them when they get worse. There we go. If we keep this up, we're going to have to like uh, co-sponsor the Farmers Almanac next year, <laughs> <laughs> or write it. Yeah, word fitly spoken. Plant by the signs. Get your hands dirty. It's pretty much our practical farming advice. So, <laughs> oh, so very good. So today we're going to talk about the subject of repentance. Repentance is a bit of a tricky subject at times. There are a few different working definitions of it. I mean, even our theologians sometimes use the word differently depending on how it is. 
Zoan, why take up the discussion of repentance? Well, you have to understand repentance correctly, because if you don't get repentance right, then you're going to mess up a lot of other things. If you take repentance as being something that actually, you know, gets you fully into heaven in the sense like, you know, my own personal works or something, if you define repentance in that way, then you're going to be, you know, led astray from what the Bible actually teaches. So getting your terminology correct is going to help you understand the Bible correctly, too. You know, there probably is that danger there of saying that, well, my own striving in this way, my own turning away from sin has saved me. I mean, there are probably folks out there who believe that. Then I suppose there are those who emphasize the other side to the point of, of not believing in any kind of turning away. And I do think you you see that a little bit in certain circles where, and oddly enough, it pops up in fundamentalist Baptist circles mm. and things like that, where they have a very, very different view or a very, how we put this, intense view of once saved, always <laughs> saved. So for them, once you've said the sinner's prayer, once you've made that confession, you're in, you can never be out, and they don't really see repentance and certainly not a life of repentance as necessary for salvation. Now, it's rather ironic because these churches also tend to be legalistic. So it's a church where it's really, really easy to get into heaven and you can't lose it, but yet they emphasize rather legalistic things uh, as far as their personal conduct goes. I find that an interesting bit of cognitive dissonance that you have in certain certain circles like that. (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, that's... That's kind of intense. I mean, I don't even know how you deal with that saying, like, it doesn't matter what you do, but you better do it right. Yeah, exactly. Like, all right. <laughs> well, I, mean, I don't know about that. And that's kind of the the thing that we can run into the danger of, too, when we talk about justification by grace alone through faith alone. That's not an excuse to live any way we want. You know, and it, of course, also, it's not an excuse to fall into some kind of legalism, but it's not an excuse to fall into some kind of wantonness either. Right. Again... You're kind of building a straw man when you put it that way, but are we really? I mean, as <laughs> as you start to see how things are becoming more and more formulated and, and how we live as though there's no consequence to anything that we do except maybe abortion or a gay wedding, then then we would hold those things as being chief sins. But when it comes to just the rampant other things that we are willing to overlook for the sake of, of grace or whatever, you know, we really do run into that danger. But with good motives, we want to emphasize the gospel, yet at the same time, we forget that, that part of the gospel is that God has made you into a new creation, you know, who now does daily repent. You cannot repent of your sins apart from God's working within you. Would you agree? Of course. Yeah, no, I mean, even talking about repentance and trying to, you know, understand what repentance is, is not going to negate the work of God in repentance. Because if God had not worked on you and in your will and in your soul and all of that, then you would have no desire to repent in the first place. I mean, that it's just as simple as that. To be able to repent is something that can only come from the Holy Spirit. Right. So then what would what would be a good working definition of repentance then? I think perhaps the best way to define repentance, and this is something, again, we can kind of hash out or debate a little bit, is seeing it as an inward humility, an inward kind of contrition. And that's kind of a loaded philosophical term that, term that we'll have to unpack a little bit. 
but for the sake of God. And then I'll and I'll try to explain why that's more important here in just a little bit. But also, in addition to that, we see the the fruits of repentance that come from that, and that is the outward change in our lives as well. We can't deny that there is, in fact, an outward reformation of someone who has come to repentance. So then what isn't repentance? Repentance is not just fear, okay? And the reason I say this is because sometimes you can get someone who is a complete unbeliever who comes to recognize that what they're doing is bad. And because they have recognized what they're doing is bad, their conscience has afflicted them, they come to fear the consequences of their actions. So to be afraid of the consequences, to be afraid of of evil in our lives is not, strictly speaking, repentance. Because you could, you know, be sorry that you got caught for stealing, but not really be sorry for stealing. Right. And really, I mean, you find this in the example of Judas. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's fear there. You know, there's some other things going on, but it is it isn't this biblical repentance that leads to faith or that leads right. to forgiveness, I should say. Is repentance necessary? Now that might bring us back to this, you know, fundamentalist Baptist question. Should a Christian repent? Well, without question. I mean, you have Luke chapter thirteen, verse five, you know, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Those are the words of Jesus. I mean, I don't know how you can get around those. Right, right. Well, people do pretty easily, you know. Oh, yeah, I suppose. (laughs) I suppose. But, I mean, we have to repent because God calls us to repent. I mean, the very first words of Jesus' sermons and of the sermons of many of the apostles and stuff like that are very often repent. You know, turn away. You hear John the Baptist saying, you know, repent for the kingdom of God is near. Repentance is very much a part of a Christian's life and should be a daily part of a Christian's life because we are turning away from our sin and turning towards God. So then we would say then the first part of repentance would be a simple recognizing that you are a sinner or that you have sinned. Right, right. Yeah, the, the first and the most basic part of any of repentance is recognizing that we have, in fact, offended God, that we have sinned in our thoughts, our words, and our actions. And because we have sinned, we recognize that we stand guilty before God. That's why I emphasized in that kind of basic definition that all of these happen for God's sake, because it's not that we're just repenting of an individual sin, although we should do that too, but that we're repenting the fact that we have offended God in the first place. We're sorry that God is angry, not that, you know, God caught us when we thought we weren't being watched. Yeah, I mean that's an and that's an interesting concept too. We don't like to speak about God being angry over sin. Right. Now, to be sure, the Christian's sin is forgiven through Christ and yet it's not as if you did not commit that sin. Right. And what I mean by that is not in a judgment sense, but in an actual sense you you are still committing the sin. God isn't just winking at it. I mean the whole point of Christ's satisfaction on the cross is the redemption from sin, specifically your sins, right? right. And that's the whole point of his incarnation in general is to eventually redeem us in, in totality. Yeah, that's the strange thing. People don't like that concept that God might be angry over something that we do. And I think that, that maybe some of this is that we've over-theologized it. You know, sure. we, we, we've tried to fit everything kind of through this sieve of or or looking at everything through a certain lens and so we can't just let the plain words of scripture stand again right. 
it's funny, and I, and I and I don't mean to make light of issues like abortion or the or, or homosexuality. It's just strange how we we would reserve God's wrath for those in some sense, right? Like sure. we would say, and they are especially <laughs> heinous. And I'm not trying to make light of them, but it, it's like we've said, well, look at what Planned Parenthood over here is doing. This is terrible. God must surely be angry at this, and, and he is. But over here, what I'm doing in secret, it has nothing to do with abortion, but God couldn't possibly be mad at that. Now, we don't put it in terms quite so crass, but I do think that that happens a little bit as we have really moved the goalpost as far as ethics and as far as, I mean, even our discussion of sin is concerned. We are very flippant about sin. Be flippant about the devil. Don't be flippant about sin, you know? <laughs> and and I think that that's kind of become our problem is we've started to ridicule everything as either fundamentalist, ooh, there's a boogeyman word, legalistic, oh, there's another one, or pharisaical. Or pietistic. You know, or piet- yeah, there we go. I was waiting on you to bring that one up. <laughs> and, and it's really, it, it's just a way of saying I either haven't read the Bible or choose to ignore what it says. Uh, <laughs> if I can put the absolute worst construction on this. Like, we know, we know that a Christian life is imperfect. And we know, however, that the Christian life is still different from the pagan. Right. And so the Christian life, yeah, everything flows from faith, but even that repentance is from faith. You are turning away from wickedness and looking toward God. That's something that only faith can do. Right. It is that turning back. It's both a turning away from sin. See, that's what we don't like, but it is a turning back to God. Right. Now, and I I hear this, you know, well, we're always sinners. We're always 100% sinner and 100% saint. And it's like, okay, let's just, let's just, let's take a step back here. We are both sinner and saint, but let's not define this in such a way that we aren't saint because that's usually what happens. <laughs> I'm, it's a defeatist rhetoric that we hear too much in Lutheranism. We have to stop it. Not that you're over, going to overcome sin perfectly, but by God's grace, God does bring you to repentance and God does continually bring you to faith and continually forgives you. If you look at all the great heroes of the faith, I mean, what stands out? Like you look at someone like St. Augustine, and it's this great testimony of what God can do to a man. And what does he do to Augustine? But he pulls him out of Manichaeism and away from whoredom and towards a life that's wholly dedicated to God. And Augustine even takes his bastard son with him into the faith. Now, what are we missing there? Okay, you look at all the great heroes of the faith, all of the saints, and what do you see? You see lives, typically. Now, you do see some that were born, raised, died in the church. Of course, they're saint, they died in the church. But in a lot of these stories, what do you have? God pulling men out of their sin and turning them around, which resulted in a life that changed, a life that was fundamentally different. You know, I, I often wonder if we even have heroes today, or even what we consider a hero of the faith today, Zelwyn, because if you look at the, the church fathers, you have these men in the lives like I just described. And today we look at a hero of the faith as a guy who wrote a book. It, <laughs> <laughs> or 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 who has a large church or who has all these degrees and then wrote another book. I mean that's literally it. It's like this man is good because he hath been published and his name is surely written in heaven and whip and stock or whatever. 
you know or because he has committed some heinous crime and has you know tried to ascend back into the pulpit so surely we can he understands what grace is right right yeah brand building through through sin yeah absolutely yeah i mean (laughs) and we've seen that time and time again you know that's not unique to even us that's 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 happened to to, i mean us as in lutheranism not us as in word fitly spoken but yeah, I mean, you're starting to see that in Lutheranism. We saw a notorious case of it in Presbyterianism a couple years ago. I mean, but even before that, Jimmy Swaggart made his big comeback. Yeah, building building brands around how bad how bad you were, and you just contrast that with Saint Augustine's Confessions, you know, where he does tell his story of his youthful sins, but he is chagrined at this. Right. You know, he doesn't treat his sin as if as it's something that just happened to him. He treats it as something that he did, and often just to do it. That that's the like when he steals the pears as a boy. Like he wasn't hungry; he just stole them just to steal them, just for the just for the wickedness of it. Well, and you could even throw Saint Paul into that and his own repentance that comes about from the Lord, because Paul goes on to say many times, especially in the Book of Acts, that you know his life was dedicated to persecuting the church of God beforehand, but then because of that repentance brought about by Christ himself, Paul then becomes the the, the great speaker for the church. Even goes, going so far as to say, I count everything that came before as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing my, of knowing my Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, to see that full-throated repentance and the change that came about in Paul's life as a result of it is something that I think we should uh, seriously contemplate in our in our day and age. Yeah, Paul doesn't say, I have been saved by grace, now I'm going to go kill Christians again because it's my bread and butter. <laughs> that doesn't happen, right? And he really, he doesn't even bring that much, he doesn't even bring that up that much. He mentions his time in Judaism, and that, of course that's in a different context, and he mentions himself as a sinner. But building around all this is not really what he does. He, he is so defined by his mission in Christ and his new life in Christ. And I think that's, I mean, we need to recover what it means to be a new creation. And we need to speak the way the Bible speaks. But even so, even Luther, who is adopted by everyone on any side of this debate that we're having here, he understands this and he doesn't speak in, you know, Luther only speaks like a crass antinomian if you cherry pick him. Which you could sure. do that to you could do that to our episodes probably. I mean, we're pretty pietistic, right? But you could probably <laughs> deep fake a word fitly episode or something. But <laughs> just spliced out all the all the good parts, <laughs> right? I mean, to be fair, Christianity is of course the triumph of grace, but it's the grace of God that has redeemed man from his sins. But we cannot separate the new creation, you know, and make it into something that just has no effect on, on the person in, in, a, in, a, in a real way. Otherwise, it becomes the, a legal fiction, right? The right. new man is, is merely just a judicial declaration that's been made. Well, that's not how the Bible presents it. It's not only that. You, you are new. I mean, you, can, you are walking in a different way now. Right. Again, repentance is not just about having the right conduct and checking the right boxes. But there is a change in orientation for the Christian. Sometimes it's two steps backwards, you know, <laughs> but, <laughs> and so we have to spend the time just, just unpacking this. No, I mean, and that's, that's an excellent point that you're making here is that I think because of the way that we kind of tiptoe around repentance or because we're trying to make 
uh, maybe purely unintentionally make repentance something about just words, we end up turning repentance into something that it's not. And so we can have someone who says, I am saved by grace through faith, but then they turn around and, you know, do whatever it is that is contrary to the, the working of the gospel. Because, you know, I have been delivered from these sins and I'm and because I'm trying to show that I'm not saved by anything that I do, I'm going to somehow magnify my own sinful nature. But that's not who we've been called to be. We've been called to be a new creation, as you say. Yeah. And, and these people never quite put it in those terms. They're more subtle than that. Right. But it's as if to, but we see it in, in these little little subtle ways, too. But nevertheless, absolutely a great point. But we're at the first break. We'll talk about more repentance right after this. As for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is tried. He is a shield to all them that trust in him. The book that sits on your shelf, The One Gathering Dust, Word Fitly Spoken, asks you to once again take up and read. Hear the words of the only wise God and be saved. We'll be right back. Welcome back. This is A Word Fitly Spoken. Willie Grill, Zell and Heidi talking repentance. So we spent a lot of the last segment talking about what repentance is, how we shouldn't view it, what the Christian life looks like. Well, now let's start to look at the parts of repentance again. We got a little ways into it, but let's let's unpack it. So the first and most obvious thing, Zellwin, we said was the recognition of sin, Right. Right. Yeah, if if we don't recognize our sins, or to use the language of 1 John, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And so part of the first part of repentance, I suppose you would say kind of broadly speaking, is in fact recognizing that we need to be saved, that we need to be forgiven, that what we have done has offended God. And the reason why it's so important to emphasize that over and over and over again is because if we don't know that we are a sinner, we're not going to feel any great need to repent of anything, right? I, if I don't know what I need to feel sorry for, I'm not going to feel sorry. Right. Well, I mean, it's just like the gospel, right? It has to be in light of the knowledge that you're a sinner, because otherwise the gospel doesn't even make sense, right? You right. just walk up to someone and go, hey, do you know that your sins can be forgiven? What? Like what? I, mean, yeah, I don't even I don't even know what that is. Yeah, I mean, everything kind of begins with being broken, right? Right. Some measure of contrition. Now, contrition's kind of a loaded word. What would be a safe definition of contrition? I think the the safest definition of contrition is that kind of sorrow which one feels, the sadness for having committed some kind of sin. It's the it's not only a recognition that what you have done is bad, but also that you've, you know, kind of 
I hate to say feel it, but that's that's really the the only way I can think of at the moment that we recognize and we are truly repentant for what we have done. You know, we're truly sorry that we have offended God. So I would consider that also to be uh, another part of true repentance is that that sorrow for sin generally and for having offended the the living God. Mm -hmm. So and I, I should point out as we break this down here. The confessions, the Lutheran confessions speak about two parts of repentance and what it defines as being the passive contrition, which again is kind of that loaded term that we were talking about. And Willie, you can break that down some more if you like. And then also a coming to faith. And so those are the two parts that the confessions present. What I'm doing is just kind of taking that first part of passive contrition and just kind of further breaking it down a little bit more to see what, you know, see how it runs underneath the hood, so to speak. Yeah. And and these things are kind of, they all go hand in hand. And we want to be careful when we talk about contrition and sorrow with not making everything merely emotional. Right. Yet at the same time, you know, it kind of goes into this next part of repentance, which is confession. So a recognition right. of sin, a sorrow over sin will lead to a confession of sin, an admission that, that you have committed these trespasses. Right. If you if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you'll be saved. Yeah, there's that Bible again. Yeah. (laughs) Now, and I think that this is there's probably a lesson here for us, especially in public confession and absolution, which is common in most of our churches, or even in private confession and absolution. That while it is not dependent upon your perceived emotion, Mm -hmm. right? At the same time. We don't want our confession to be just some kind of rote thing. We don't want it to be just ritualistic because then we start to fall into a Roman error here to where we think that satisfaction is made, or at least the obligation is met, rather, by simply going through the right that I'm covered, regardless of if it's sort of absent-minded or not. Unless we want to believe in an ex operato version of the absolution, in which case, I I guess you can do that. But... (laughs) It's just to say a word of caution of actually being conscience, conscious of the words that we use when we confess. Right. Not a question of am I using the right or wrong words, but am I actually cognizant of what I'm saying? So we'll take the right of public confession and absolution. I know I've pulled confession a little bit away from what we're talking about here, but it's related. No, it, it, it absolutely is related because when we go through and say you know things like, I, a poor, miserable sinner, confess unto you all my sins and iniquities— right. What we are doing is a part of repentance. I mean, it is a part of actually verbalizing our sorrow and our recognition that we have, in fact, offended God. It's something that we're supposed to do. Now, the great danger, of course, is what you point out, because it's a regular part of our services, you know, in many cases, you know, saying it every single Sunday, we are tempted to just say, well, okay, we're done with that part of the service now. We can get on to something else. And so we do want to be careful not to turn repentance into a matter of just words. It's not just because we have done this particular thing that means, okay, I've done everything. I've checked off that box. You know, I can move on. But recognizing that our continual need for repentance is what the, the liturgy is trying to do. So, yeah, we don't we don't want to turn it into something more than what it is, but we also don't want to make it something less than what it is. Certainly. It, it, is, it is still an important part of our services. Very good. So then we come to, 
see, we're just going to keep triggering everybody. So <laughs> realize your sin. There is some measure of sorrow, some contrition, which is then confessed. But what about some other parts then? More than just say sorrow, right. what, what other adjectives might come to mind? Well, the one that I think might trigger the most people would be an actual shame for sin. And as I've explained it to you know my congregations and to other people before, shame is one that we don't really like talking about because our culture kind of shames shame, if that makes sense. <laughs> True, we, yeah. We, we don't like the idea of being ashamed of anything. You know, don't shame me, you know, don't fat shame me or, or slut shame me or whatever you want to, whatever pejorative you want to throw out there. Right, right. We, because we don't like that perceived judgment that kind of goes along with it. But a shame for sin is should be a, a self-shame, a recognition that, you know, what I have done is actually offended God. Right. And that's, I guess it's part of contrition, if you want to look at it in those terms. But, you know, God has been so good to me, and yet I've been so awful to him. You know, does, isn't that going to make us be ashamed? Yeah, I mean, shouldn't you feel some measure of guilt? I mean, that... <laughs> yeah. And guilt is an emotion too, not just as a again as a legal term, right. uh, but but both kind of go hand in hand. There is a there is a shame over what what you've done, and shame can sometimes be a good deterrent. I do think this is where private confession is good, especially when you enumerate your sins or those sins you want to enumerate, right. because there is something about admitting and actually vocalizing what you've done that really makes it clear the the state that you find yourself in. Right, and so that when one is con- is going to their father confessor and actually admitting to these sins, that is very stark and makes everything really rather clear. Now, then, of course, the good side of that is they then receive pardon; they receive that remission of sins; they right. they receive a true absolution. So, the the shame I believe is meant to lead you to repentance, to repentant faith. Okay, right. The shame is meant to drive you to the place of forgiveness, not to Judas' gallows, right? for example. Right. Judas' tree, I should say. (laughs) And yet, for many, I think it does. And I I do think that there are these cases. You know, we we joke a lot about here about the terrified conscience being something of a Bigfoot or a Sasquatch. Because, you know, you're like, ah, the only pictures I've ever seen of it are really fuzzy. I, I I think there's a lot of fake terrified consciences out there. I think that the terrified conscience is just kind of a dog whistle, you know, to certain people, you know, hey, I said the right terms and I did this and, and whatever. But there are those who sincerely suffer from a terrified conscience because they don't know where to find this forgiveness. They've come to the point of knowing that they need it or they are too ashamed to to go where forgiveness can be found. That is why we need both law and gospel. That is why the gospel must be clearly proclaimed, and not just the gospel as a thing, but but also the gospel as a as a where. Where is it to be found? Where can I truly receive that? And this is where the sacraments, I think, are, are very important for the person who is burdened by guilt and shame. Something to point out here, too, is that shame is not merely an emotional exercise either, which I think sometimes can be a kind of temptation for us. So, you know, we kind of turn it into this cathartic cycle that we go through of, of you know, mm-hmm. I, I feel bad and then I hear the gospel. Now I feel good kind of a thing that can be dangerous, too. 
this shame, as you say, should actually drive us somewhere to actually, you know, not offend God so that we give, you know, no more occasion for shame so that there's no more reason for God to be angry or for us to be ashamed of having treated God so poorly. Yeah. And, and shame is, I mean, it's a very tricky thing to deal with. And the things that people become ashamed of are often surprising. It, it's almost like shame has a tangible quality, like shame will stick to some people in a right. way. And I don't know a better way to describe that, but especially people who who have been wronged or, or violated in some way, they tend to walk around with shame, even though the evil was inflicted upon them. Right. You know, that that is why ultimately this is something that can only be cured by spiritual means. I, I do wonder if I can just absolutely throw a bomb into the conversation here, <laughs> lob a grenade, as it were, if often we aren't giving people the wrong medicine. And what I mean by that is, I mean, if you have mental illness, by all means, seek professional help. That's beyond what pastor can do. But a lot of these ailments are spiritual in nature that people suffer with unknowingly. And if they just understood where the remedy was, if they could just be taught or at least brought to brought to the to the means and taught them and then receive them, could they not have some sort of victory over these emotions that plague them? And I'm talking about a, a bad kind of shame here, or or a shame that leads to despondency. A, a woman whom Satan bound for 12 years, that the, kind of bingo. thing. Bingo, precisely, precisely. <laughs> and maybe we're you know we're coming out of left field here. We have we have so the Western. Uh, I don't want to say Western Eastern, but we'll say the modern church today has so bought into every other remedy for everything except for the old ways that we used to know about. And we'll have even conferences dedicated to them and things like that. Some men need them. I understand. You know, let's not forget about the importance of the word and the power that actually does work through God's means of grace, his sacred ordinances, as we TLH people say. <laughs> it's just a, it's an interesting thing. And, and if, and if we're only teaching a sort of rote kind of repentance or rote kind of confession, then there, yeah, people are just going to struggle with, with these feelings of shame and guilt all the time because they're not really they're they're not really receiving it rightly. It's just becoming, well, if you do this according to this page here in the prayer book, then then you're gonna be okay. Well, now again, does anybody ever really describe it that way? No, but that's kind of the way it becomes. What we're saying here is that in absolution, in the actual oral proclamation of the gospel, yes, and even in the Lord's Supper, there is a spiritual transaction that happens whereby the sinner's sin is truly forgiven. And therefore, the shame attached to that sin may well be alleviated. It also comes with, I mean, anything that we talk about. I mean, what we hold on to shame, we hold on to guilt sometimes because even though God's forgiven it, we want to hold on to that, right? right? Or we don't know how to let go of that. And so with this becomes not merely just something that can happen during the divine service, but here's the pastor's great act of counseling these people towards letting these things go, to to actually forgive the one who has wronged you. There is catharsis in that. Now I'm using psychological terms, right? (laughs) But there is some tremendous power in there of you're wronged by someone and you're holding on to that guilt associated with that or that shame associated with that. The Christian, as part of his or her repentance must learn how to forgive themselves. I mean, forgive in and of themselves. Right. Not to say not forgive yourself. That's kind of like 
gobbledygook. But I mean, they themselves <laughs> must learn how to forgive. That's what I'm saying. They themselves must learn how to forgive those who have done wrong. It's it's almost as if Jesus has come to take our diseases and heal all our ailments. But there I go, right. bringing the Bible back into it. So Right. You know, and it's funny you mentioned that because I've been really reading a lot more about that. It just keeps popping up in my Bible reading. And it's popped up in the lectionary if you're on a, the three-year, actually, fairly recently, too. Yeah, when you go into towns, heal the sick and preach. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> they don't they don't really tell us that at seminary. <laughs> but then again, we're not really wandering preachers either. We're just kind of, you know, particular parish boundaries and all that. That's right. You know, you just settle in your <laughs> districts and uh attend the conventions. That's what we that's what you gotta do. <laughs> yeah, that's an that but that's an interesting thing. And if and if we can tie it all to repentance, contrition, confession, is that not all part of this remedy? Is this not part of healing in a way? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Is is there not a spiritual root to a lot of these ailments? And and if so, who are the real doctors? Where's the real hospital? Or, you know, the, the great physician, as it were, the Holy Spirit. So, <laughs> yeah. Imagine that. What can you do? <laughs> living living water, you know, almost has medicinal <laughs> qualities. Let the elders anoint you with, never mind, never mind. Never mind, never mind. Yeah. Some of <laughs> All you. These have, verses just keep flooding. Some yeah. of you have died for abusing communion. You know, never mind. Yeah. Never this mind. Is why some of you have become ill and some of you have died. We'll just gloss over that, fam. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, very good. I think I feel another episode coming on soon. Well, that's it'd be a good time. It'd be a good time. Yeah. So, all right. So we've got shame set down. Now, what about a rejection of sin? What would what would would that be part of repentance? Yeah, it absolutely should be a part of repentance, and even even more violently, uh, hatred of sin. There we go. We yeah. should actually physically hate the fact that we we personally are sinners. Now, I don't yeah. mean hate the fact that other people are sinners because that's hypocrisy. I mean hate the right. fact that you are a sinner. Yeah, and we should always have this perspective that I am the chief of sinners. Right. Right? We should that's how we should look. That's a that's a good way to not judge others in their sin to say, but you know, I'm much worse than the neighbor across the street. And here comes then the struggle of Romans seven, right? That Paul has. And this is when right. we can talk about the the simul a little bit. That there is a war going on. But these evil deeds that he does commit, he hates them. Right. Yeah, no, that's that's exactly the point, is that it's not that Paul is saying, oh, I struggle so much, my life is so hard, I guess I, you know, I'm just going to keep on going status normal kind of a thing. No, he says, this is not how it should be, and the fact that I keep doing this makes me, like, angry. And the, and the fact that I continue to sin against God even when I don't want to is a cause for sorrow, is a cause for getting violent kind of a thing. You know, who will deliver me from this body of death? Yeah, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? And and that's the thing that, that that's difficult because oftentimes in committing the act of sin, you actually don't hate it. <laughs> you you, you yeah. find yourself enjoying it, otherwise you wouldn't be doing it. And therein lies the war that the regenerate man fights. We are fighting against that old Adam, which does rejoice and kind of, you know, the old Adam is a hog rolling around in, in slop. And the new man is is constantly trying to like not be dragged into the hog pen by the, by the pig. Right. And, and that's kind of the picture there. Cause that pig really likes what he's doing. He's cool, you know, nice muddy <laughs> spot. He's wallowing. And the new man doesn't want that. 
All right. He's got his new white suit on, doesn't want to get soiled by it. But nevertheless, <laughs> the pig keeps trying to drag him in. And and so so you do have that and you and you do have the simile, but that doesn't mean you are a defeatist. Saint Paul is not a defeatist by any means. And he is constantly at war, but he ultimately knows that the great prize that the Christian receives is the forgiveness of sins, yes, but also a body and a new life free from sin, its consequences, and even the desire to sin. Right. We, you know, repentance becomes more clear when we look at salvation and our ultimate justification in totality. I, I think. I think that that helps. That that you're turning away from this. I mean, because that's the ultimate goal—to be forever turned away from this sinful world and its ways and your sinful desires. Yeah. Oh man. No, that's that, and really is the, the the great point that we're trying to make here is that if God hates sin so much, which He does. We should also hate it too if we want if we are a part of God. That we don't want to make him sad or upset or anything by what we have done. And so why would we seek after that which we know is wrong? And so to hate sin with a perfect hatred, I mean to even quote the Psalms to some degree, is a godly thing. We should be trying to root it out of our lives in a in a violent, even active kind of sense. Because this is something that will kill our souls if we allow it to fester, if we allow it to continue. We should not give any room for the devil or any room for sin as far as we are able. Are we going to fail in that? Of course we are. <laughs> you always you always feel like you have to, to make that qualification, which I think is kind of telling. Right. But the, the even though we do fail, as St. Paul rightly noticed, that doesn't mean that the struggles is somehow not worth it or that we just kind of give up but rather right. we should redouble our efforts so as to obtain the upward calling of, of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. But there I go with the Bible again. Oh, there's the Bible again. Well, all right. It's a good note to end this segment on. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly. The word of the Lord says, Get wisdom, get understanding, forget it not, neither decline from the words of my mouth. You can check out all of the Word Fitly Spoken podcasts on Podbean, iTunes, or your favorite podcast app. We'll be right back. Welcome back. This is Word Fitly, Willie Grills and Zelwyn Heidi continuing to talk about repentance. So we've gotten to the parts of repentance and talked a little bit about the impediments to repentance. And let's just keep right on going while we're full of steam. So <laughs> now someone might say, Pastor Heidi, you are putting way too much emphasis on this subject of repentance, even though it's an hour long podcast, just about one word. Do we not have the mercy of God? Isn't that all we should worry about is grace and mercy? What is this repentance talk? 
If we're going to be talking about repentance, we are talking the way, first of all, that the Bible talks, because our Lord emphasizes in great detail the need for a genuine repentance. So it's not, I mean, yes, mercy is part of this as well, and the gospel itself is that great mercy which we have, but does the gospel make any sense unless we know why Jesus died for us? We're not going to understand the gospel unless we are repentant. Just like the Pharisees and the scribes who were not repentant could not understand why Jesus came when he did. I mean, they didn't see a need for him because they believed themselves to be whole. They believed themselves to be you know, not in need of repentance. But Jesus over and over and over again drives home the point that he has come to save sinners. And I think that's the real reason why we continue to talk about repentance and the need for repentance and why it is so important for the Christian. Would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is just this is just part of the economy of salvation. I don't think there's really any way any way around it. And and especially for for Lutherans who ought to have a, a deeper understanding of these things, that salvation is not just a, sta- a shallow and, and simplistic thing, and and nor should it be. I it, it's as if the again I, I kind of want to go back to this: who are our heroes? Who do we look up to? And and what do we see as, as a great hero of the faith today? And I mentioned, well, the guy who writes a book or the guy who has this. Well, what about the guy who has these big rallies, these big crusades, wherein salvation is typically shown as just, well, raise your hand, and that's the sum and substance of the Christian life. Right. You know? Now, they never presented quite like that. The, and they used to be better about it, about saying, well, follow up with the local church and that sort of thing. But how often did it really happen? Right. And and how many people were lulled into this sense of, well, I made this decision, I put my hand up, I walked the aisle up to the, what they call an altar, anxious bench or a rail, and so I'm good. I signed this card. I'm okay. <laughs> God God cast a vote for you, the devil the, against you. You get the deciding and vote. You get the deciding vote. Daily yeah. reminder, democracy is heresy. So, <laughs> yeah, I'm just, you know, yeah, no, <laughs> But but you do see this. I mean, those are like legitimate tracks that have been passed out, you realize. Right. Oh, I've seen them. Yeah. yeah. And and you go, if that is the Christian life, it's not what you're using a different Bible than I have. And you know, we are a comfortable people. And I think repentance repentance is a calling to die to the world. And death to the world means a life of denial, of difficulty. And I do think that that is the way of the Lord, and the Christian is to follow in his way. Now that said, with regard to repentance, uh, let's not confuse this merely with penance, whereby my life isn't hard enough, maybe I can make it a little harder, and I'm gonna, so I'm going to flagellate myself or, deny my, or, or inflict pain or deny myself in that way. But self-denial that sort of difficulty is something that we've lost. We kind of glory in the fact that we eat and drink and have things to excess. And I understand that these are all good gifts, but I'm not certain that the abuse of the gift is is the best use. It, it, we've kind of bought into a Christian hedonism. And, and in that scheme, there is no true repentance. Because what do you have to repent of? You have all these fatty foods. You have I'm using fatted in the biblical sense now, you know, the fatted <laughs> calf and, and so on. These flesh pots even. We'll, we'll go even further back. 
the cucumbers, uh, the cucumbers yeah. of Egypt. No, but you have all these things and these material luxuries and, and these are good things. I don't want to say they're not, but have they lulled us into a sense of Christianity that is easier than it ought to be? And that's not to make Christianity into a, into a religion of works, but we would say that Paul doesn't believe in a religion of works, and yet Paul's life is difficult. For the first several centuries, the life of a Christian was difficult. In parts of the world today, to simply live as a Christian is dangerous. Mm-hmm. If Christianity is the way, that does imply a journey. If there is a narrow path that leads to salvation, if the Christian must take up his cross, well, what if you live as if you've no cross to bear? If there's no cross to bear, there's ultimately no failing. And if you don't fail, you don't sin. And if you don't sin, you don't need repentance. Are we merely Sunday Christians? Are we yeah. merely, you know, the, that we like going to church because it makes us feel good? And, you know, we like being Christians because, you know, we think that it gives us, you know, merely that, com- I say merely just to, to really emphasize the point here, the comfort in, in kind of trying times without recognizing the fact that Christianity is trying. It <laughs> right. is, you know, a difficult thing because, you know, what do you do in the situation where you are you set with a choice between, you know, God and something else? That's never easy. It never can be easy, especially when the people involved in the controversy are those who are close to you. Right. See, the peace and the joy that the Christian receives is often separate from the the worldly joys that they receive, whether sinful or unsinful. I mean, obviously, there are worldly things, or excuse me, there are things that are temporal that are good. Family, okay, food, all these sorts of things. Back to first article gifts, right? They're not evil in and of themselves, and they're meant to be enjoyed. And yet there is a supernatural peace and contentment that the Christian receives from the Holy Spirit in his time of of trial and suffering. Right. Again, I think this is, as Lutherans, we're particularly sensitive to any notion of self-inflicted suffering, and we probably should be, but there is a sense of self-inflicted denial that's good. So the epistles do speak of times of fasting, for example, right? Or, right. or 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 a husband and wife a mutual parting you know for a season that that sort of thing a, a fasting should we should say not 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 separation like you know well we're gonna we're just gonna take a break for a while you know like uh, <laughs> from being married yeah yeah it's that's not that's not <laughs> what it's saying but but fasting from certain aspects of that right of the marital life or of course fasting from certain foods that sort of thing that is a self inflicted discipline if you will a self denial which isn't bad. You know, we've talked about fasting before. I just think that with regard to repentance, if we see the whole Christian life in its totality, then these things don't become difficult. But if we so compartmentalize the Christian life, then it then that's where that's where we have a hard time accepting these realities, right? Right. right. So that so that I can never deny myself because that's somehow denying the good things that God's given me. Well, that's silly. That's just a trite way to look at it. I mean, you can abuse anything. And then you're presented with like the Rechabites who, you know, gave <laughs> up wine because of their father's command and God praises them. So Right. Nazarite vows anyone. <laughs> Samson notwithstanding. Right. Well, hey, he in the end it wor- it worked out. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, see, that's the thing. Like, if you just let the Bible speak, if you, if you just look at the Bible and, and what the great teachers said, they they did understand this. We can't let the abuses of certain men and teachers destroy everything. You can't throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? Right. So that certain wicked men have made repentance into just this impossible work. Some men have made repentance into nothing that, and say that it matters not. Well, we're not going to throw out repentance simply because these jagaloons, you know, abuse, they abuse it or something like that. People abuse baptism. We're not going to get, get that away. We know people have done abominable things with regard to the Eucharist. Well, we're not going to stop administering that or teaching about that because, because some genius gets up there with Dr. Pepper and Doritos or, or something. And starts consecrating them. We're not going to do that. Or because some some ELCA priestess baptizes in the name of the mother, redeemer, and womb or some nonsense like that. We're not going to just throw baptism away. So in, with regard to the abuses that certain terms and certain disciplines have, have had over the years, I, I say let's just be sober-minded about them and see what the scriptures have to say and be informed, frankly, by the the practices of church history and the great theologians. You know, look at how the theologians we admire, let's look at how they lived as well as what they said, too. And by that, I mean what they did. What did their actions say? Right. And, you know, not to say that you're going to find anyone perfect there, because you're not. But nevertheless, you're, you're, we're called to look up to our elders, right? To honor our father and mother. Uh, all good stuff, Will. <laughs> that was an unreassuring grunt there, Zola. No, 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 it was it was good. I'm just, you know, how do you how do you follow up something like that? But maybe maybe the way to kind of follow it up is to say that one of the things that we kind of haven't hit on a whole lot yet, but I think we should really drive home now kind of in the, the last little segment of this podcast is that true repentance will also bring about the fruits of repentance. And we you cannot separate the two from each other. I mean, Jesus says, you know, if if the tree is good, then the fruit will be good. If the tree is evil, then the fruit will be evil. Good, The good fruit of repentance that follow from it will take a, any number of forms, and I don't think that we can overlook them by saying, oh, well, that's just satisfaction, you know, that kind of loaded Roman Catholic term, or to say, oh, well, it doesn't matter because, you know, I just, I feel sorry, and that's just kind of it. No, there are genuine fruits of repentance. And what, what would some of those be, Willie? Bearing fruits in keeping with repentance? Well, let's see here. That's a tricky one to answer. Uh, so, yeah, Jesus is Matthew 3. Okay, how about if we go back to guilt and shame, how about peace? Would peace be a fruit of that? Sure. That you no longer are terrified or guilty or ashamed, but you have received the peace from the Holy Spirit through repentance? You're just Galatians posting. <laughs> right. You know, that's very Lutheran of me. <laughs> I do think there is some zeal to be had in repentance. An eagerness to share that forgiveness that you have received. Sure. Two, uh, what, what would be some other ones that you would? Uh... You're gonna you're gonna throw it back at me now. Yeah. <laughs> well, what about restitution? Oh, there we go. There we go. Now that's a fun one. I thought you. I knew. I knew you were gonna go there. So that's why I threw it back <laughs> to you. Yeah, restitution. There's something you don't hear about. I'm happy to have my debt paid, but. <laughs> the the example that I used was, you know, how would you feel if a thief came to you and said, I feel really, really, really sorry about having stolen this from you. But then he just kind of kept it when he left. Yeah. <laughs> how would how would you feel about his repentance, Willie? Right, exactly. Well, it's like the non-apologies that we get sometimes. Hey, I'm sorry you got mad. 
<laughs> you know. I'm sorry. You, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry you're the way that you are. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, restitution. And that really, th- that there's some equitable law there. You need to pay back for the damages that you did. But that would be a fruit in keeping with repentance. I have wronged this person in this way. I, I need to rectify. I stole this person's car. I am now contrite. I'm going to return the car. Right. And restitution often not that simple. No. Well, and of course, I was thinking like Zacchaeus too. You know, whatever I've taken, yeah, I will right. get back fourfold. But there you, you know, go. the Bible even commands that kind of above and beyond kind of restitution. But that's getting into you know the law. So right. we don't want which to. we don't want to talk about that because it doesn't inform us now when you see <laughs> that large chunk of the Bible we cannot go to. What would God have me do? If only God had said clearly in a list somewhere, <laughs> we we would know his will. Yeah, I, I otherwise we're just kind of in the dark on this. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> well, I mean, it goes back to Paul in Romans 7. The good I know I should do. Well, how do you know what you should do, Paul? <laughs> yeah, restitution, that's, that, is, that is a good one. Well, what do, you, what do you do in situations where restitution is impossible? I don't know. Monkery in a life of repentance? <laughs> I mean, that is an interesting tradition that did happen. A man would commit a crime so heinous he could not pay it back, so he just goes and lives as a hermit or something like that. Well, now, don't tempt me with hermitry, but anyway. <laughs> Some days you think, you know, it doesn't sound too bad. Yeah, that. <laughs> yeah. What what do you do there? Well, thankfully, there is grace. Right. And there is forgiveness. Well, the reason I bring that up as an example is because I don't think we should think of restitution as being like, okay, you've done, you know, you've done your certain amount of penance and now you have to make satisfaction of some kind. That's not what restitution is about. And I think the fact that some things cannot be repaid in a worldly sense really drives home that point. Well, and then there's that sense, though, of the wronged party then forgiving their debtor. Right. You know, I think the Christian probably has the obligation to do that. And there's there's a difficult fruit of repentance, forgiving your brother when he's wronged you. Right. That's funny. The fruits are, uh, we don't grow them, but they're not that easy to harvest sometimes. <laughs> well, or thinking, thinking of that forgiveness too, I mean, because the, the world will forgive those whom they love, right? And yeah, that's, Jesus yeah. even says as much. But to forgive somebody regardless of their attitude towards you, is truly a Christian fruit of repentance and a very difficult one. Because, you know, what do you say to the one who has hurt someone or hurt you personally a great deal, even physically? Right. To You are called to forgive them in, in the gospel. Yeah, and that goes back to, you know, the last time we were talking about that, you know, the, the shame and the guilt that the Christian can hold on to just because of what's been inflicted upon them, not necessarily something that they've done. It's something that, you know, could only be produced by the Holy Spirit because the natural man wouldn't do this. And the peace that someone receives when they forgive the person who's wronged them even heinously, you know, that, that forgiveness and peace is something that we as a church always at war have to remember. We are constantly in a spiritual battle, yes, but oftentimes we find ourselves at war with our own brothers. We have to learn forgiveness, that forgiveness that even hurts. But once we let that go, there is that there is that peace that rests there. It's a peace that the world cannot share. It's a peace that only those who are part of Christ can dwell in. And it is so difficult. And we have a world, I mean, where Christians have so abandoned this principle 
and it's in every denomination and, and indeed, I fear every congregation, that we cannot even forgive our own brothers in Christ. When we are coming together every Lord's Day to receive the forgiveness won for us by our elder brother, Jesus Christ. Now think about that. As I shame us towards the end of the of the, of the segment, <laughs> but we we need to learn that, but not not simply, but not in in this way, not simply because God says so, although that should be reason enough. Not simply so we can you know check this off the list, but to forgive is good for the soul. To forgive puts us more in the mind of Christ, who has forgiven us when all of our sins were ultimately against Him. And then those sins that we committed against him, who is our holy God, we then lay upon him, and he bears them, and he takes them away. If we are not willing to forgive our brothers, what does that mean for the forgiveness that we receive from Christ? The Bible even speaks of this. Yes, yeah, pretty clearly, too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, 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 we must forgive, we must turn away, and God is constantly pulling us back when we won't. But that, that forgiveness lesson is something possibly the ultimate fruit of forgiveness that we need to learn. That just as I have been forgiven greatly, so too must I forgive greatly those who've wronged me or those who owe me or those who I feel owe me, depending upon how it really is, you know? So Zelman, any final words on repentance as we near the end of of this episode? Uh, Maybe just one quick final thought about the fruits of repentance too. You know, sometimes we should take quite seriously our Lord's words when he says that, you know, if your hand causes you to stumble, you know, cut it off. That that kind of self-denial, that self-effacing trust in God's mercy is something that I think should really be driven home at the end of this segment. And even if that means that we have to deny ourselves and actually cut certain things out of our lives for the sake of our souls... There is a joy awaiting us far greater than anything that this paltry world could offer. Well said. This has been A Word Fitly Spoken. If you like what you heard and want to know more, check us out, wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or twitter at wordfitly. I'm Willie Grills, here with Zell and Heidi. God love you, and God bless. So I quickly returned to the bench where Lippius was sitting, for there I had put down the Apostles' book when I had left there. I snatched it up, opened it, and in silence read the paragraph on which my eyes first fell. Not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. I wanted to read no further, nor did I need to. For instantly, as the sentence ended, there was infused in my heart something like the light of full certainty, and all the gloom of doubt vanished away. Closing the book, then, and putting my finger or something else for a mark, I began, now with a tranquil countenance, to tell it all to Olypius. And he in turn disclosed to me what had been going on in himself, of which I knew nothing. He asked to see what I had read. I showed him, and he looked on even further than I had read. I had not known what followed. But indeed it was this, him that is weak in the faith, receive.